Good morning, Salem Baptist Church. I am thankful that you have joined us this morning for our worship service. Before we jump into God's Word, I want to take just a moment and and mention a couple of things that I would like for you to be praying for. First of all, we've got some folks who are sick, who are having some difficulty. Um, I think about about Debbie Lakey, who had a hip replacement this past week. Norma Oral is in hospice care, and I want to ask that you pray for her. The doctors have have told her that um, and her family that it probably won't be long and, um, and she will not be with us anymore. So be praying for her and her family during this time. Also pray for those who have lost loved ones from within our church over the last several weeks. We've got um, Penny Dilworth who passed away, Philip Shelton, Conrad Leip, and Catherine Cook passed away just a few weeks ago. So be in prayer for those people, if you will. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we're going to be. For the next two weeks, we're going to talk about a couple of little bit sensitive topics. Uh, As we walk through Nehemiah, you don't see him shirking difficult topics. And when difficult situations come along, he confronts it head on. And we're going to follow him and the way he works through the book of Nehemiah here. Today, we're addressing oppression and the ungodly nature of oppression against other people. Next week, we're going to talk about generosity, specifically talk about generosity when it comes to um, handling the resources that God has blessed us with. Now, we're on this journey through the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, we see a place rebuilt and a people revived. Most of what we talked about so far in Nehemiah has centered on the rebuilding of the wall there in Jerusalem. God lays a burden on Nehemiah's heart And he lays a burden then on the people's heart to do something about the walls that are torn down. So they jump in there with everything inside of them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, as we enter chapter 5, we don't see the rebuilding of the wall really talked about here at all. There is one reference to rebuilding the walls near the end of the chapter. But this is a chapter that's centered on the people being revived. So we're going to talk about here today. Now remember, these are people who have lived as exiles for the past couple hundred years. Some of them have had the opportunity to return to the former nation of Israel after being exiled in Persia and Babylon. Um, But all of them feel this sense of even the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem being foreign to them. Jerusalem is nothing at all like it was back in the glory days of David and of Solomon. And since the days of Ezra, just a couple of decades before this, there are some people who worship God, but the influence of foreign gods would be prevalent in this land right here at the time of Nehemiah. These are a people who are in desperate need of being revived from the inside out. Now, there would have likely been a sense of of long-standing discouragement. Remember, a couple hundred years before this, these people are carted off uh, in, in exile, in captivity, As we read over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that some of these people had some habits that they had that were sinful, that had to be dealt with. There was oppression that was all around them, not just from outside nations, but there's also oppression from people who they should have been able to trust. They realize they're not able to trust these people. A revival of the body and a revival of the mind and the soul is needed for the Jews there in Jerusalem. And, you know, they probably didn't realize it when they started rebuilding the wall, but God is not just going to build this wall. He is going to use this time to revive the people. So let's jump right in here with Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. 
Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is Nehemiah speaking now. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his own brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say." And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now, before we unpack this, let's jump into a word of prayer. So would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you and we ask that you show us not only what your word means, but then, Father, how we are to apply it to our lives. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and Lord, to, to apply it to our lives. And, and Father, may we be changed as a result of, of being in your word today. Our Father, we love you, and we thank you for the love that you've got for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, let's see if we can break this passage down a little bit and, and better understand what's taking place. First of all, you got the people as a whole, okay? They're poor. They are very, very poor. In fact, they're so financially poor that they can't find food to put on their table without taking drastic measures. Now, in this case, the drastic measures means that they are having to send their children off to work as slaves in order to provide. They're mortgaging off their property in order to pay their taxes. If a person doesn't pay their taxes, they're sent off to live in captivity once again, um, and and there's, there's certainly no chance of them being able to provide for their families if they are carried off themselves. These people are in dire straits. So what do they do? And here's where the nobles and officials enter the picture. The nobles and officials are individuals who are obviously better off than the people as a whole. They've got the ability to pay their taxes. They've got the ability to provide for their families. Now, the problem is that part of the way they're making their money is by pulling interest from people who have to borrow from them to survive. Now, we don't know how much interest they're requiring. It could be a little bit of interest. It could be a whole lot of interest. But regardless of the amount, they are living, and it honestly appears as if they are thriving. 
off the misfortune of their fellow Jews. They're even taking it so far as to enslave the people who cannot pay. In verse 5, we see the less fortunate Jews say, it is not in our power to help it. In other words, they're saying, there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing we can do. Now, so far, we've seen two groups of people. We've seen the less fortunate Jews who are being taken advantage of, and we've seen the more fortunate Jews who are taking advantage of the less fortunate. In other words, we've got the bullied and we've got the bullies. The bullied and the bullies. Now, that's language that that we can relate to. That's language that we can understand. The person who is bullied is the person who, for, for one reason or another, draws the attention of someone else, the bully, who only sees that person for what they can get out of them. The bully doesn't truly care about the individual. They are egotistically focused on whatever gain they can find in life through using that other person. Now, I think it'd be wise for us to stop here for just a moment before we continue in this story and we continue to see what Nehemiah does and talk for just a moment about why oppression even exists. Why does oppression even exist? Well, at the core of oppression is the reality that we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. Sin brought a lot of destruction into this world, and, and oppression is one of the byproducts of that sin. But then when we, we move on from that core reality onto talking about practical reasons for the oppression of the weak, and we see several reasons here that that, that oppression might take place. First of all, there, there's bitterness or, or hatred that could be in people's hearts. Sometimes a person's heart is so captivated by bitterness that the natural repercussions are for them to oppress other people around them. The chances are good that at some point in your life, you've come across someone like this who is, who is bitter to the core of who they are. When I was a kid, there was a man who lived not too far down the road from, from where I grew up, and, and he was a very, very bitter man. He had gone blind at some point in his life, and this blindness turned him into that bitter person. And I can remember, even as a young boy, hearing him speak to his wife in a very demeaning way, and he did so over and over again. And I remember thinking that the way he spoke to her was not right. So even as a young kid, I could get, I I understood, you know what, that's not right, what he is saying and how he's saying those things to his wife. His bitterness led to his oppression of his wife and other people. As I continue to think about why um, oppression exists, I also think about a, maybe a perceived or a real, even, act of wrong that's committed against me or against those I love. You know, it could be that at some point, someone hurt you, right? Or, or maybe they hurt someone that you love, and your response now is to treat them with contempt and do everything in your power to hold that hurt over their heads and make them pay for what they've done. They hurt you, so you're going to hurt them back. Or maybe you think that they have hurt you, and so you're going to hurt them back. And it doesn't matter what it looks like, but you are going to get back at them, and it turns into an oppressive relationship, maybe even to the point of you're a bully, and you're bullying this other person. And that shows a lack of willingness to forgive them for what they did. But then also as I think about uh, this oppression and, and why it exists, I think about the, the word greed. Greed. Greed says this. It says, 
I want more than I have right now, and I see how I can use other people to get what I want. Greed will drive a person to do things and say things that do nothing but harm other people. A good example of a person whose oppression is driven by greed is a slave owner. A slave owner sees only the gain that they can get from oppressing other people, and they abuse the power they have over those other people. 200 years ago, the wealth of this country was built on the backs of the slaves who were exploited for the labor that they could offer their masters. Modern-day slavery includes the exploitation of the vulnerable And the modern-day slave owner traffics people so that they can put money in their pockets at the expense of and through the suffering of those who cannot fend for themselves. But the slave owner is not the only person who oppresses out of a heart of greed. Uh, Another example is the modern businessman or businesswoman. Oftentimes, they are no different. Sometimes oppression takes on the form of not paying an employee what they're worth out of a desire to put more money in the pocket of the owner of the company. Oppression through greed is seen in the way that family members manipulate relationships for their own gain. Brothers uh, oppress sisters. Sisters oppress brothers, all in an attempt to satisfy their own lustful greed. But at the core of this discussion about why oppression even exists We understand from reading our Bible that ultimately oppression exists because of a distorted view of God's will. Now, I want for us to take a a quick history lesson here for just a moment. Um, We live in what is known as the age of grace, okay? Jesus has come. We're in the New Testament age. Jesus has come. He has offered us the free gift of life, and both Romans and Galatians tells us that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace, However, the people in Nehemiah's day are living in what we can call the age of the law. The law that was given to the Israelites in the Old Testament applies to these Jews who are working in Jerusalem at this time. Now, God has in his law given very specific instructions for the people to know how to live well with each other. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, "'If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor,' You shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. That's God speaking there, okay? God speaks again in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20, when he says this, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money. And by the way, brother there is talking about the Jewish nation as a whole. You shall not charge interest on on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Folks, the intention of God is clear when it comes to how Jews were to interact with other Jews. And if we were to put it in a nutshell, it would be like this, okay? It is not wrong to lend money to a non-Jew for interest. It is not wrong to lend money to a Jew It is wrong to demand interest on a loan to a Jew. It is wrong to enslave a fellow Jew. Now, God is not against a person making money. He is against, however, a person exploiting the vulnerability for you to make that money. Nehemiah sees what's really going on here. He sees the oppressed. He sees the oppressors. He sees the bullied, and he sees the bullies. 
Now, for a person who is bullied, what is their greatest need? You think about a person who is, who is being bullied, what is that person's greatest need? And I would argue that their greatest need is an advocate. An advocate is someone who will step up and say, enough, this has to stop now. That's an advocate. Nehemiah is that man here in this story. We read in verse 6 that he is very angry when he heard what is going on. In fact, read in verse 6 there. Here's what we find. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So verse 7, I took counsel with myself. I love that phrase. I took counsel with myself. That means he stopped and he thought about it for a little bit. What do I need to do here? And the result is that he brings charges against these officials and against these nobles. He brings his charge against the Jews who are oppressing the other Jews. Now, I can imagine Nehemiah going to Exodus chapter 22 and him going to Deuteronomy 23 and laying out God's law in front of these nobles and officials. And he confronts them on their sin. He says, this is wrong. You've got to stop doing this. He shows them that what they're doing is utterly and completely wrong. In verse 8, we read that they didn't really have a response to Nehemiah. There was nothing that they could say in their own defense because it was obvious to everyone that is there that they are wrong. By the way, I also love the fact that Nehemiah brings in a great assembly, right? Bring a lot of people into this room because a lot of people are already involved in this. We're going to hash this out. We're going to deal with it right now. Nehemiah has become an advocate for the oppressed Jews who are unjustly enslaved to the other Jews. I can remember um, a guy in college who was bullied constantly. And I'm not going to use his real name, but, but let's just say that his name was Jesse. Okay? Jesse was, was different. He was quirky. He wasn't necessarily the smartest person on the dorm, and he wasn't the best at, at making friends. But there was about six guys on that hall of 70 guys altogether, about six guys who loved to make fun of Jesse. And they picked on him incessantly, all the time. seems like they were picking on him. I'll never forget one hall meeting, and hall meeting was typically on Tuesday night. It was at 10 o'clock at night. All 70 guys are lined up there on the, on the hallway, and the RAs are, are speaking to us, and they sometimes give a Bible lesson. Sometimes they're, they're giving us instructions, giving us news, things like that. But we're all sitting on this hallway, and those six guys get up, and they went over to Jesse, and, and they just started dancing around him. And I'm not going to dance like they did, but they just, they just were doing everything they could to embarrass him and intimidate him. And in fact, he was so embarrassed that he's cowering in the floor with those guys all dancing around him. And everyone else in the hallway, including the RAs, were laughing at the situation. Now, Hillary will tell you that, that I don't get angry often, but most often when I do get angry, it's because there's an injustice of some kind that is taking place. I am, I am extremely justice-driven. I'm justice-oriented. I want to see right done by other people, and I want to see right done to other people. So when I see what's happening, I, I'm, I'm filled with a righteous anger, and instinctively, I didn't even have to think about it, I went over to, to break it up. And I'm not going to tell you the full story on how this went down, but I will tell you that it turned into a shoving match. And many of the people who were just laughing their heads off realized that they were wrong, and they jumped in to help. Now, from that day, Jesse considered me his advocate. 
In fact, the next year when I was an RA, he made sure that he lived on my hall because he felt protected. He knew that he had a friend who could take care of him. And I'm not even saying that Jesse and I hung out. We didn't. But I was his advocate. Now, I'll tell you that story, not to say that I always get it right when it comes to dealing with oppression. In fact, I have many more stories where I don't get it right. I tell you that story because it's a real life example of what oppression may look like. It comes in different forms, but there's always the oppressed. There is always the oppressed, and there's always going to be the oppressors. And there's never a shortage of need for advocates for the oppressed in our world. Now, if we're completely honest, we would have to say that there are probably times in which we are all three, right? You've probably been oppressed at some point in one way or another in your life. You've probably been the oppressor at some point. Whether you realized you were oppressing someone else or not, there's a good chance that at some point you were the oppressor. And I hope that you found yourself being the advocate for the oppressed. Now, I firmly believe that as Christians, we should all be an advocate for those who are around us who are oppressed. And as I think about it, I realize that oftentimes we are not the advocates that we need to be. And as I thought about it this week, I thought about this passage, I thought about the way that Nehemiah stepped up to be that advocate right in the middle of when nobody else would speak up. There's no telling us how long this had been going on. Quite possibly for for years before Nehemiah comes on the scene, this oppression is taking place and nobody's ever done anything about it. And maybe they tried, maybe they didn't, but now Nehemiah is saying, I have the ability to do something about it, so I'm going to step up and I'm going to do something. Nehemiah becomes that advocate. But oftentimes I think about the fact that we have the opportunity to be advocates for the oppressed. We have the opportunity to speak truth into a situation, but we simply don't. And part of what I wanted to do here this morning is to challenge us as a church to think about the ways in which all around us there is the oppression of the vulnerable and people who don't have a voice, who need a voice. You say, well, how in the world do I do that? How do I step up and and be the kind of advocate that that is needed? As I thought about this passage this week, as I read this story in Nehemiah chapter 5, I wrote down four words that describe the way that Nehemiah dealt with this oppression that's going on. As I think about these four words, I think this is a great lesson for us as believers who are living in this this culture where we do see oppression around us. But here's the four words. How should a Christian respond to oppression? Number one, they should respond with strength. They should respond with strength. Now, folks, there is nothing about Nehemiah that tells me he was timid about dealing with this. He was strong, he was sure. Now, there's, there's some people who are watching this today, and, and, and you would have no trouble at all to step into the middle of a difficult situation and speak truth with strength. In fact, I've seen some of you do that before. You're willing to step into the middle of a situation and, and speak up. But then there's others who are listening, and maybe you're watching right now, and you're, you're thinking, you know what? If I had to be honest, that's not me. Maybe you're the one who tends to stand by and, and watch and observe and, and not get involved. But I want you to think with me for just a moment. Think about the way that God handled the oppressiveness of sin by sending Jesus. 
He didn't sit idly by and watch from afar and hope someone else did something about my sin. He sent Jesus to earth to do something about my sin. He handled it with strength. Nehemiah handles this situation with strength. There is going to be times that we are called on to deal with the injustices of this world, and when we are, we should do so with strength, knowing that truth and knowing that justice is on our side. We don't handle it with a sense of being timid. We handle it with a sense of strength. But next, we should handle oppression with grace. We should handle oppression with grace. Now, as Christians, we have been given much more than we could ever deserve. In fact, we've been given this free gift, right? Free gift of, of eternal life. It's a relationship with God where there is nothing that we could ever do to earn it, but he freely gives it to us. Our goal our goal should be always for those, for other people around us to also experience the grace that we have experienced, the grace that we have been given. So when oppression and when injustice takes place, what an opportunity for us to show everyone around us the wonderful, matchless grace of Jesus. God offers the very same level of grace to me that he offers to every other person in this world. Why would I treat anyone as if they are viewed as anything less than a precious person to God? You see, that's how God has viewed me, so why would I view anyone else in any different way? But then number three, the third word that I think of is, is with love. That's how we respond to oppression, with, with love. Nehemiah had a love for the people who were wronged, but I believe he also had a love for the people who were doing the wrong. Now, he's strong with them. He confronts them but he also has redemption. He's got restoration in mind. We see him work towards a common goal, a common bond with these people. He's able to, in love, bring resolution to the matter so that people could get back to doing what God has called them to do, building that wall. People respond to love, but people also respond to the lack of love. These people didn't respond to Nehemiah, and I think, in, in anger, I mean, they didn't respond to him in anger, and I think it's because they saw that he could be trusted with their best interest, the best interest of everyone involved. But then lastly, the fourth word that I think of is intentionality. We should respond with intentionality. Nehemiah didn't sit by and wait for somebody else to step up, right? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't hope that the situation is going to resolve itself, he knew that he was the leader, and he knew that he had the ability to do something about the situation, so he intentionally spoke up and he took action. Too many times we have people who see injustice and oppression take place, and we hear the cries of the oppressed, and we cover our eyes and we cover our ears and ignore it. You don't believe me? Just watch a news story where you see that there are people who are going hungry, maybe even people here in our own city who are going hungry and you change the channel, or you ignore it. You watch it and think, oh, that's too bad, and you move on from it from there. But our intentionality should include much more than just, just not ignoring it. We don't, there's some people who, who give lip service to seeing injustice done, and they say, you know what, I, I, I want to see justice done, but then they don't back up what they say. As an example of this, you think about the Declaration of Independence that was signed by 56 men. And they signed a document that said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. 
But did you know that out of those 56 men, 41 of them were slave owners, actively slave owners when they signed that document? They were the kind of people who said, we want to see justice done to us, but we don't care about justice for other people. We could say all day long that we are the advocate for the oppressed, yet in all reality, we are the oppressors, oftentimes simply because we don't do something and step up as that advocate. Now, in closing this morning, I want to ask two things of you. Number one, I want to ask you to commit to being an advocate for the oppressed, not an oppressor. Commit to being an advocate for the oppressed, not an oppressor. Search your heart, search your life, and see if there's any way in which you are bullying or unjustly oppressing other people. And look for ways in which you can advocate for those who are vulnerable and those who have no voice. Most of those who are watching this service live um, in so, uh, live in some kind of form of, 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 of privileged society. If you're watching right now, there's a good chance that, that you do live in, in some kind of privilege of some kind. And that there's others in our culture, in our city even, who are not living with the same level of, of privilege as you are. And so I would challenge you to think about how can I be an advocate for those who are oppressed? How can I be a voice for those people who have no voice? But then here's the second thing I would ask of you. Number one was commit to be an advocate for the oppressed. Don't be an oppressor. But then number two, never forget the great advocate that we have. Let Jesus be our example. The reality is that none of us are perfect people, right? But the Bible is very clear that a Christian has a great high priest in, in Jesus who intercedes at the right hand of God on our behalf. So that when we do sin, when we do mess up, while Satan is standing there accusing us before God saying, God, don't you see Kivet? And don't you see the ways that he messes up? Don't you see the ways that he sins? Do you really think that he loves you because of that? That while Satan is doing that, Jesus is at God's right hand and he is saying, look at my righteousness that is accounted to, to Kibbit. You see, that's what happens when we become a believer, a follower of Jesus. The sin that was on our account before is taken away. And even though we still sin, the righteousness, the holiness of Jesus is placed on us. So when God looks at us, he does not see our sin but he sees the righteousness of Jesus on our account. That's what makes Jesus the great high priest. He's going before the Father and he is interceding for us. He is truly the great advocate. He stepped down into the sin of this world and he took on my sin and he died in my place and he died in your place. Now this morning, if there's never been a time in your life in which you accepted Jesus as your savior, in which you said, you know what? I am done with my sin. I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm sorry for my sin. Then I want to challenge you to, to, to right now, just pray. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I want Jesus to truly be my great advocate. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this, this story that Nehemiah gives us here in, in the book of Nehemiah that you chose to include as a part of your word. Father, we know we don't always get it right. We know that we've got, most of the time, good intentions. But Father, we also look around us and we see the ways in which um, justice is not always being done. 
But we have a great advocate in Jesus to be our example. So Father, may we follow his example and help us follow his example and be an advocate for the oppressed around us. Our Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.